Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is an interview with Nakchon Rinpoche and Troma Rigsal in Alameda, California in March 2010. Interview questions cover various topics from the book Rays of the Sun. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. Your generous donations make these podcasts possible. If you wish to make a donation, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. It's this idea, uh, or this paradigm, I guess, of truth versus method. Is that uniform from the point of view of every vehicle of Buddhism? Or is this something particular to the Dzogchen view? Or is it in the Nyingma tradition this is understood? Is Buddhism taught as truth? in some other yana? I think that um, what you have to divide here is uh, Buddhism as it is and Buddhism as it's taught. Hmm. Uh, Buddhism as Dharma or Buddhism as culture. Hmm. I wouldn't like to be too specific about any of this, but Everything that is taught as Buddhism is not necessarily Dharma. Some of it is culture. Mm. And that can be problematic. I think that when it's taught as culture, it tends to be truth as much as any other religion is truth. Mm. And this is problematic. Mm. Um, Because really, one has to approach Dharma in terms of experiencing it. Mm. So nothing is taken on faith. Mm. Uh, Having said that, there is learning faith or reasonable faith. uh, Everyone has that to one degree or another. You You can't even, I can't even go to see a movie at your recommendation without some degree of faith. If I have no faith in your recommendation, I wouldn't go. So you say, this movie is worth watching. And from my knowledge of you, I think, oh, right, I'll go and watch that, or I'll hire it, and I'll see the DVD, because you've recommended it. So, so you know, faith is involved there. You know, faith is involved in all kinds of things, and that's learning faith. When it applies to Dharma, then it's, uh, it's, well, this has worked out so far. I've tested this. I've found it to be real. So then I'm going to approach the next thing, particularly if it's a practice that takes some time Uh, You can't enter into a practice that has a result if you don't have some idea that it's going to work out. Mm. But in order to enter into that, you need some experience. So it always moves in terms of gaining more experience that will then allow you to enter into a process of training Mm. where you don't have the end result immediately. Mm. And the more demanding the process of training, the more experience you need to enter into it. Mm. 
And that can often be a problem when people take on too much out of emotionalism. It can work, of course, but it's, it's, it's not reliable. I remember that my first three-month retreat, I entered into um, without sufficient experience. And I basically went into it because I was head over heels in love with my teacher mm. uh, in a devotional sense. And everything was perfect. And then I found myself in this retreat, <laughs> and it was hell. It was horrible. I was lonely. <laughs> it was grim. Uh, but, and I, I stuck it out in there, but um, it would have been really bad if I'd left the retreat. Um, what kept me in there, I have no idea, but I was not prepared for it. But I'm just the kind of obdurate swine who'll, you know, who'll, you know, do something like that. But I, I pretty nearly went crazy in there, you know. So <laughs> it's uh, uh, maybe some people would say, "Well, yes, you did go crazy in there, and that's why you are what <laughs> you are." But, but um, you really shouldn't take on too much. So I, I guess I'm a bad example of saying you shouldn't do it because obviously you can do it because I remained in there till the end and it did work out very well in the end, but not without what I would describe as too much pain for a regular person. You know, so it's really worth proceeding slowly according to your experience. Mm. And anything that you base on faith is, is very tricky. Mm. It's really not a good idea. Because it, would be, it can be disappointing, or why, why is it not a good idea? Well, if you're f you see, if you lose your faith, mm. you're worse off than you were before. But if it's your experience, you can't lose that. Mm. If it's your real experience. So um, I tend to be um, quite um, Theravadin in my initial advice to people. Even though what I teach is Vajrayana, I really emphasize this experience. It has to be your personal experience. You shouldn't take this on faith. You should really test it. Mm. You know, there really has to be a solid foundation here. Because if you're not proceeding from that solid foundation of the acknowledgement of unsatisfactoriness, you know, if you're looking for happiness out of Dharma, it's really tricky, and I think a lot of people really are doing that. Mm. They're practicing Dharma because they want to be happy. And you should really practice Dharma because you want to understand the nature of reality, not because you want to be happy, mm. because you might not become happy. Mm. If you become happy, it's, it's, a, it's a great side effect, I would say.
<laughs> but it seems like at, at least Dharma does give people in general, I know for me and, and seeing people, it does give people a greater capacity for joy or to experience. Oh, sure. You see, what it gives you and what you want out of it are two mm. different things. Mm. Sure, I mean, anyone who practices is going to become more joyful. Mm-hmm. I don't like to emphasize that, yeah. though. You know, mm-hmm. Which is why the um, Four Noble Truths are there, which are saying, this is a bum rap, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Accept that, you know. Yeah. No one wants to hear that. Mm. But, you know, if you say, oh, this will make you happier, mm. then it's, it's a sales pitch, mm. you know, and you're getting that off the TV all the time. You're getting it off every hoarding, you know. Buy one of these, it'll be better. You know, no, it won't. <laughs> You'll just have one of these and less money. That's all that means, you know. So I, you know, I, I don't like to sell dharma in the way that the people sell objects. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, if you practice dharma, you will become happier. But if you're practicing dharma because you want to be happy, then that becomes an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Because then, you know, it, if you happen. If you happen to feel that I'm not happier, I'm not more joyful, then you lose your confidence in Dharma and you stop practicing. Because you really have to practice you know, the, the initial motivation, the Hinayana motivation is really important at the start. I think this is why Trungpa Rinpoche um, emphasized that so much. He was always talking about, you know, disappointment. Mm. Mm. You've got to start from disappointment. Mm. And no one wants to hear that. Mm. I would say if we are, If you were going to describe the goal of Buddhist practice or the goal of the path, how would you describe that? I mean, would you hear, you know, if it's not to become happy, then what would be, how would you put it? I never described the goal. Really? Fantastic. Wow. Um, that's, that's a powerful statement in itself of what Buddhism is. Um, I guess the goal is described in terms of the practices. If I'm talking about the four null jaws, then obviously the goal is non-duality. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's not entirely true to say I don't describe the goal, but it's described in terms of the practices. I talk a lot more about what the situation is. Uh, how people are, what afflicts them in particular. Um, I think there's a problem in terms of the way that Buddhism is practiced in the East and how it's practiced here, or how it seems to be practiced here in Tibet or in any of the Himalayan countries where Buddhism is the religion, uh, you're practicing because that's what you do. 
you know, as Christianity or Judaism is in the West, you're, you're born into a culture and that's what you do. I don't think there's any great idea of a goal there. Um, I think the goal really only comes around um, at higher levels of practice, you know, within those cultures. Otherwise, you're just doing it because you're doing it. Um, being goal-oriented can be a big problem. Um, someone once asked me, um, uh, were there any particular people who I'd never take as students? Wow, and, I said, and I said, yes, uh, people who um, desperately want enlightenment, mm. who make that statement, I want enlightenment more than anything else. I'd never take such a person as a student because they're lying. <laughs> I'm not interested in people who lie because if you wanted it that much, you'd have it. So what are you talking about? You know? And you know, who'd want it anyway? As it's often described, you know, you you disappear. You know, you're not there anymore. Ha <laughs> ha! I really want that. I want to disappear. Sure you do. <laughs> it's completely crazy. You know. <laughs> You know, I want to destroy my ego, you know. <laughs> I want to not be there, you know. I want no defining characteristics. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's, um, that's so I, I think you know, too much emphasis on the end result is a problem. I mean, um, if you could understand the end result, you'd be pretty close to the end result. Mm. So there's no point in talking about some kind of end result. It's, it's important always to be dealing with that with which you need to deal. Mm. And I don't think that is so very different from horse riding or anything else you're trying to learn. Mm. Even though there are aspects of, uh, you know, um, you know, if we're talking about a practical issue like horse riding, it's still fairly mystical. Mm. Because uh, I can honestly say that I have no idea why I fall off horses less than I used to. I don't think it's anything that I'm doing. I have a suspicion it's because of what I'm not doing. Oh, wow. I think I used to fall off more because I used to have some kind of uh, physical reaction, like I'd go fetal. Mm. And on a horse, going fetal is fatal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the legs come up, <laughs> you lose the stirrup, the horse does something, you slide off. Some, now, now, somehow now I don't do that. But I don't know how I got to that point. So you know, if you talk about horse riding enough, it gets to sound mystical, because you know there are certain strange things. Things are upside down in the way you learn them. Um, but it's always really dealing with what you have to do next. So the end result can get in the way. If if I'm obsessed with 
some fantasy idea of you know horseman or horsewoman of the year and you know some some grandiose state then um you know and i'm not yet keeping my heels down at the trot then it's silly because getting those heels down is what i need to do and that's quite enough you know that's you actually need more than whatever the next thing is and then the reason that you even think there is a next thing is actually because you have a teacher and you're aware of the teacher as having gotten that next thing at the very least because you can see that next thing in them and that what that's what actually moves you on so if there is any end result it's only accessible through the teacher in terms of the student's observation of the teacher as representing mm. a, a state that they've not attained mm. but the awareness of the student can only go as far as it goes in terms of understanding the teacher because you can only see what you're prepared to see uh that sounds highly mysterious but it's just the same with horse riding i used to watch kundradachan's lessons before i had my lesson and she was getting instructions from her teacher that i couldn't understand not that i didn't understand the language but i didn't know what it meant and sometimes kundradachan would get it right and sometimes she'd get it wrong and i couldn't tell the difference <laughs> i was watching it thinking right so now you've got it right and now you've got it wrong what can i see here and the most exciting point for me was when i started understanding her lessons mm -hmm. i thought oh i've advanced because i can understand the instructions now and before that i just had no idea what was going on so i don't think you, i don't think dharma is that much different from that you know if you simply want to evolve if you want to understand yourself if you want to understand the nature of reality then that is a good foundation you know if you want to be enlightened then that's crazy that's really wonderful to hear i know that the i've seen from time to time some maybe websites and read articles and heard people talk about well you know if it's, if you're describing buddhism in terms of just having greater understanding then it wouldn't be buddhism that it has to be about enlightenment and that there's some maybe there's some kind of group of teachings out there that makes the emphasis on enlightenment the kind of deciding factor of the authenticity of a Buddhist teaching. So it's interesting to hear you then talk about this. Well, I'm not saying I have yeah. the best idea about it. Oh. <laughs> it's just me. Um oh. I don't really pretend to represent Buddhism mm. even as a Buddhist. Mm. Um as a teacher I also have to learn from experience mm. how to be a teacher. So a lot of the things I'm saying come out of my experience of teaching 
and what appears to be useful for people and what mm. appears not to be useful. Mm. And I've personally found that enlightenment as a concept is not useful. Yeah. Uh, this says nothing about uh, my contradicting any other ideas mm. about people who emphasize that. Mm. Uh, maybe for those teachers and those situations that's the perfect thing mm -hmm. but from my own experience I, I find it unhelpful and that uh, the people who really um, look like they might have some chance of experiencing that the non-dual state are usually the practical people you know who, who are prepared to proceed according to their experience mm -hmm. um, so I just base it on my own experience of teaching. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Rinpoche, will you describe for us non-duality? It seems to describe so many different things mm -hmm. these days. In California, especially in Northern California, there's a lot of different teachings of, that are called non-duality. And so could you define what non-duality is in Buddhism and in the Dzogchen tradition? Well, um, it is non-duality. Non-duality is the um, recognition that emptiness and form are not separate. Existence and non-existence are not separate. The birth and death are not separate. Mm. It can uh, uh, Non-duality is emphasized in different ways in different yanas. Uh, in Sutra yana, uh, it's often described as the lack of distinction between self and other. And that is one way of approaching it in terms of you know, dealing with the emptiness of identity. I'm not sure what else to say at this mm -hmm. point apart from um, non-duality is, um, I really only know of two forms of non-duality. One is the Buddhist form, which is a multiplistic non-duality. Mm -hmm. And the other I know mainly is a Hindu form, but which might also exist in other traditions. And massive caveat coming now, um, by Hinduism, this is a word that um, is coined by the British Raj and has now come to mean some umbrella term of many you know, different ideas within Indian religious philosophy. But anyway, um, there's the non-duality there uh, or the non-duality of the Tartikas, uh, which is all I know about in terms of how Buddhism regards it, as being a monistic non-duality, uh, the idea that everything is one. But that's not what's meant by non-duality in Buddhism, which is multiplistic, meaning that we don't all um, glom into uh, what's this idea about yeah, the, the dewdrop that slips into the shining sea? Um, this is this I would describe as monistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. I suppose um, 
non-duality is something that um, is experienced in many different ways according to different practices or that's described in many different ways. Usually every practice that approaches it you know, describes it in a particular way according to the nature of the practice that approaches it. So within the four null jaws you're looking at that which moves in mind as being undivided from the mind in which it moves. So that's the approach there between sem and semni, mind and the nature of mind. And then in terms of uh, the nine bardos, when we're looking at the um, gyoa bardo and the tamal gishepa bardo, there we're looking at the um, non-duality of of continuity and discontinuity in terms of the experience of being. So every practice looks at that in a different way in terms of what the non-duality is or how it's described in terms of the language of duality. This gets heavy now, you see. No, it's so interesting. So that brings me to question I wanted to ask you about dualized perception. In Rays of the Sun there's one part in page 31 it says dualized perception ordinarily operates in terms of anticipation, preconception, conceptualization, preoccupation, and judgmental discrimination. Could you talk about what is dualized perception, why is it a problem, and how do we recognize when we're in it? Um, well, recognizing that you're in it is about the easiest thing or the most pervasive thing because we're in it all the time. Okay. Um, it largely has to do with identity with um, a need to understand ourselves in some way as having a fixed identity on which we can rely. This is what I am. So I have some idea about what my existence is, what existence is, and being fixated on that so that we reject everything that seems to undermine whatever our definition is. And this notion of dualistic perception in terms of anticipation, preconception, conceptualization, preoccupation, judgmental discrimination, I don't know if I've ever heard you describe it like this in any other context except in Rays of the Sun. And Wondering, is that in terms of the five elements? Or no, more? this is. I, I tend to list things yeah. like that. Um, I don't think I've listed them in that way for a long time. Well, this is all twenty years yeah. ago, but um, I was merely giving a list so that I could show people the kind of things it covered. But all all these things are um, are the tools of self protection you know, judgmentality, you know, in terms of saying this is good, this is bad, uh, 
this this helps me, this hinders me, um, this reifies me, you know, this whatever. Uh, in terms of anticipation, it's, you know, how can I understand this situation in terms of, of me, in terms of what I feel I am? So what's going to happen next? What are you going to ask me next? How, how will it be when you ask me that? Because I'm on camera. Oh, what if I say something <laughs> wrong? Or what? What if it's you know, I you know, you know. This is anticipation. Okay. You know, and I I mean I I could talk about each word there, mm. but it it all has to do with you know the extremely important me project. You know, what everything is to me um, in terms of my identity. You know, my computer, my, <laughs> my, um, my, 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 you know, um, Microsoft is great for this. Everything is my, you know. The first thing I do with the computer is I go into that and I remove all the my's. I know it's my computer. I bought it. You got the money. It's my computer. I only you tell me it's my computer. But um, um, so um, samsara is the manifestation of Microsoft. That's what it is. Everything is my, you know, and everything. But, you know, uh, most of the world doesn't care about me at all. Most of the world has never even heard about me, you know. So um, why is that such a big deal, how everything relates to me, how I can feel safe, important, um, solid, separate, continuous, permanent, defined? So that preoccupation with how everything relates to me, that's, that's the hallmark of dualized perception. Mm. Okay. As if there were mm. a me there. It's not that there's not a me there, but it's the definition is always changing. Uh, I think it's the, put simply, it's the necessity to define that me and fix that definition and fight against everything that tries to change that definition mm. rather than accepting that this me whatever it is this i is always changing its characteristics are motile and that you're continually being redefined by everything you get on an aircraft and you're defined according to that situation as a passenger. You, know, you get out, you go through immigration and customs and different things happen. People are talking to you, looking at you. you have, um, you're either a mother or a daughter or a friend or an employer or an employee or, or a pedestrian or, or a driver. You know, the definition keeps changing. And you're all of those things and none of those things. You're a young person, an old person, um, whatever's changing. Um, so we tend to use the tools that I've mentioned there, like the preoccupation, the, I can't remember them all, um, but in order to reify identity when really we have no fixed identity. 
and that's uncomfortable. So, you know, getting back to Dharma again, um, it's being all right with, with the you know, discomfort of that, or better still, realizing that it's not actually discomfort. We only think it's discomfort. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable at all. And so even allowing ourselves to be redefined by our circumstances and experiences, would that be a path out of dualistic perception? Oh, it's a good start, certainly. Mm. Okay.